Good morning, God's wonderful people. Welcome to another episode of Logos Zontanos, where we give focus to expressing the life of the Word of God. For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The Word of God is alive. In Psalm 86 and verse 16 and 17, David declares, O turn unto me and have mercy upon me. Give thy strength unto thy servant and save the son of thine handmaid. Shew me a token of good that they which hate me may see it and be ashamed because thou, Jehovah, hast opened me and comforted me. Let this be your prayer today. Ask God to turn you and to be your help, to have mercy upon you and to give you strength as you go through this day and make his praise glorious. The righteous man is the man who acknowledges the greatness of God and completely surrender to the will of God. Today we continue our study on Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 to verse 31. In this study, we are looking at the three declarations God made concerning man. We are analyzing these three declarations and understanding what it is that God is declaring to us, what God has declared about us, and what God declares that we should be doing. As we look at these decorations, we would have identified several things concerning the warrior. But most of all, we are looking at the warrior's identity. We are looking at the warrior's preservation. We are looking at the warrior's assignment. And as we look at these three areas of the warrior, we are beginning to understand who we are. We are beginning to understand what we're supposed to be doing. And we are beginning to understand how we are preserved. Today, we are continuing our look into the third declaration because we have already considered the first and the second. We are looking at the third declaration and we are analyzing the second statement in that third declaration. Where God declares that he has given to us every tree in which is the fruit of a tree yielding seed. To you it shall be for meat. That's the second statement God declared in this, second this third declaration concerning man. And we are analyzing that word tree. We are looking at the letters that make that word or compose that word tree. There's the letter ayin, which I've already looked at when we consider the word esave. That's the word for herb. And we are now looking at it under the name for the tree, the Hebrew word for tree, sorry. So we don't need to consider the ayin anymore. And so we're looking at the last letter of the word etz, which is the Hebrew word for tree. And that's the sadi. In our consideration of the sadi, we have looked at the basic pop components of this, this letter. And we are now looking at the Psalm 119. And what we're doing, we're looking now at the words that are used in that section of the psalm, which is verse 137 to verse 144, we are looking at those words that are used in that psalm that begins with Asadi. In most of the sections of that psalm that focuses on the Hebrew letters in the alphabet, so in the Hebrew alphabet, and they go in sequence from Aleph to Tav, and in the section that deals with the Asadi, there are 11 words that are 
they're beginning with the letter Saudi. Now, normally with the letters in the various sections of Psalm 119, they do not have more than eight words in each section. There are a few of them that has up to 10 words that begins with the focus letter. There are some that has 11, and yet there are some that has nine. All right, so we are looking at the, these additional words in the Saudi section. In the Saudi section, there are some additional words that are used there in this section in addition to the eight words that are normally used. So in, for example, the section that deals with the, with the bait, there are eight words that are used in that section. And so there's only eight words to consider. But in this section on the Saudi, there are 11 words. So there are eight words plus, th plus three. All right, but we're not going to look at the additional three. What we have seen in this section is that there are five times the word Sadiq is used. So we know Saudi, it, it means the righteous man or to be righteous. The word Sadiq means is a word for righteousness. And so those five words, we understand that they, that, that, that speaks to righteousness, but there are six additional words that are used. And this is it is these six additional words that we are considering. We have already looked at three of these words. We have considered the word uh, command, which is sava, and we have considered samat, which is the word for consumed, and we have also considered the word sar, which is the word for enemy. All right, today we are going to begin the fourth word that is used here in the Psalm 119, verse 137 to verse 144, and it's the word uh, saraf, which means pure. This word saraf, it is a word that is used here in this section of Psalm 119. Uh, let's go to the Psalm and let's see how that word is used there so we can have an understanding as to of this word. David says in verse 140, he says, Thy word is very pure, therefore thy servant loveth it. Thy word is very pure, therefore thy servant loveth it. Now, this word pure is, is the word that begins with the Saudi. It's the word saraf. Now, the Saudi is a path that leads to a destination. It is this concept of the Saudi that gives rise to the word saraf because it's a, it's a path that leads to a destination. Now, keep that in mind and consider this word pure because this word, this word saraf, it means to refine. It means that is to remove impurities in a metal to make the precious metal pure. So saraf means to refine. That is removing the impurities in a metal to make the precious metal pure. When you find gold, because gold is dug or mined out of the earth, when you, when you mine that gold or you, you pan for gold in the river, when you find that piece of gold, it is not pure gold. It is gold mixing with a little dirt or other um, metallic substance. But So if you want a pure gold, you're going to have to take that piece of rock. you got to put it through a furnace. And through a particular process, you're going to separate out all the impurities or burn out all the impurities. And when it comes out of that process, it's going to be the pure gold that is left. So that's what is meant when you talk about refine, to refine something. It speaks to a process. And we have already established that righteousness is being right with God. 
having a right relationship with the other. This idea of a process may convey the idea that one must work to be righteous. However, this is not the case here because man is not the refiner, right? Man is not the refiner in this case. It is God, Yehovah, who is the refiner. Man is the precious metal. In Isaiah 64 and verse 8, Isaiah declares there, But now, O Lord, thou art our father. We are the clay and thou our potter, and we all are the work of thy hand. So here it is declaring to us that God is the refiner. In the same way, we must understand here that God is the one who works to perfect. He is the one who works to refine. We are simply the one being refined. We are the item being refined. And we have to understand that. We have to understand that God is the refiner. He's the one who is working on the precious metal. So with this idea, we must understand we are not the ones who make ourselves righteous. We don't work to be righteous. We are made righteous by God. We are the workman. We are the work of God's hand. Paul put it this way: We are the workmanship of Christ, created in, 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 in we are the workmanship of God created in Christ just to do good works. We are God's workmanship. We are the work of God's hand. Righteousness is the work of God. Again, that's being declared here in this word pure. And just the word itself, that, that the sense of being pure, it conveys the idea that being righteous means you're pure. You have been purified. Ah, <laughs> this concept is telling us that when you're righteous, you have been purified. And someone may say to us, oh, but you, are, you still have these dirty habits and, and sin still lurks in your body. Of course. But remember that God lives in eternity. God lives in eternity and he still operates in time. He created time. But he lives in eternity. So we have to understand here that our God, our God most high, he lives in eternity. And therefore, whatever he does, he does from within the realms of eternity. So when God looks at us, he sees the completed work of salvation. But as we go through time, we are appropriating the work of salvation. And so we have to surrender to the hand of God as he works through this process of purifying us and making us righteous. You see, when God restores us to fellowship with him, that is us becoming righteous. But know that we are righteous we must work the works of righteousness. And working the work of righteousness is still not our effort, not our work. It's the work of God. So what is required of us in doing the works of righteousness is complete surrender. We have seen that when we look at the word consume, that being righteous is all about us being consumed or our will taken over by the will of God. So that's what righteousness demands. Being righteous demands total surrender. So, the seraph relates to righteousness in that righteousness is Jehovah refining man, removing all the impurities from man until man is the image he created him to be. So that is what righteousness is. The seraph, it relates to righteousness in that way. That's how they relate. The tree of righteousness must bear fruit. 
You must produce works of righteousness. You must produce fruits of righteousness because you have been made righteous by God. Man must manifest the righteousness of God. He must declare and show forth the righteousness of God. Man is made righteous by his relationship to Jehovah. But that relationship must manifest in man's life, both in what he does and what he says. Because man is righteous, he must do that which is righteous. Let's look at the next word. And that's the fifth one. And it's the word Sahir. And Sahir is the word that is translated small. Now, in the text, which is in verse 141, it says, I am small and despised, yet do not I forget thy precepts. A wonderful statement declared here by David. I am small, but I don't forget thy precepts. You know, sometimes you might us hear of the situations where individuals, when they become small, when they reach a point where they're not recognized, they become insignificant and nobody's looking at them, then they are despised. They forget about God's precepts. And they begin to try to find other ways of alleviating their stress and strains. <laughs> it shouldn't be that way, my friend. But let's look at this word and see how it relates to righteousness. This word, Sahir, which is translated small, has five shades of meaning given in the Dictionary of Biblical Languages. The first shade of meaning, it means younger sibling that is pertaining to a child in a family which has an older sibling and possibly no siblings younger than the person be, being focused on. We see that, in, in a, for example, in Genesis chapter 19, verse 31, where it says, And the firstborn said unto the younger, our father is old, and there is not a man in the earth to come in unto us after the manner of all the earth. Those are the, the, the daughters of Lot speaking with each other in Genesis 19.31. The second shade of meaning of this word is younger. That is pertaining to being relatively younger. Often the younger of two objects. Right? So it, it's where comparing two objects where one is younger. So in Job 30 and verse 1, it says, But now they, they that are younger than I have me in derision, whose father I would have disdained, to have set with the dogs on my flock. So we see that there, the, the, the speaker here says, But now they that are younger than I. So it speaks to some, some, uh, someone or something, an, an object or a being that is relatively younger. All right? Often when you're comparing two um, persons are two objects. All right. The third shade of meaning is lowly. Lowly. That is being small or little. Pertaining to having a low status in a society or family relationship. And then the fourth meaning is to be small. Little. That is pertaining to having a small physical size. Small in size. Is that you're small in status? You're small in terms of being younger than somebody else. You're small in the sense of being the younger sibling. Or you're small in, the, this is the fifth year of meaning now, or you're small by virtue of being a servant. That is a person of low status that does task for a superior, possibly owned as a slave. Now, which of these five shades of meaning do you think David is talking about? We know, obviously, he's talking about the third one used here, lowly, being small, little, pertaining to having a low status in a society. Because he says, I am small and despised. So we understand from that that that's what he's addressing. But from these shades of meaning, we can begin to see the connection with the Saudi. 
all of the words convey the idea of being subordinate to or subjected to someone else or to something else. So it conveys the idea of being subordinate to. All five of the five shades of meaning convey that. You are the lower of two, the smaller of two, the younger of two. You know, this, this whole idea of being subordinate to. We established earlier that the Saudi is a path that leads to a destination or a fish hook. You know, that's a fish on a hook. In both these concepts, the connection with the Sahir can be seen. Both, when you look at the concept of a path that leads to a destination or a fish hook, the fish on a hook, both of these concepts convey the connection with the Sahir. The path to a destination is is subject to the will of the creator of that destination. By that I mean, when someone creates a place, or let's say that he, he identifies a plot of land, and he says, I'm going to build my house here, and he creates a pathway to that house. You see, that pathway is created by the owner of that property or the creator of the property. He creates the pathway to that property. So that pathway is subjected to the will of him who creates it because he determines where that path goes. He has trailed, he has blazed that trail to that piece of property. And that path is subjected to the will of that trailblazer. And the fish on a hook is subjected to the will of the fisher. The fish can't swim, go anywhere it wants to. It has to obey the fisher who now has it in his hands through that hook. And so he pulls that fish in. So the fish is now subjected to the will of the fisher. Therefore, the idea of being subordinate to, it permeates this concept of the Sahir. You are subordinate to some, some, someone else or to something else. When David says, I am small and despised, he says, I am of a low status and people are despising me because of it. Mm. Righteousness, my friends, is always in full acknowledgement that there is one greater than you, Jehovah. Righteousness is always in full acknowledgement of the greatness of God, that God is greater than you and you are subjected to God. There is no way you can ever be righteous and not acknowledge the greatness of God and the fact that God is greater than you. There are some who purport righteousness as being something that they have achieved. But they don't understand that righteousness is not something that they have achieved. Righteousness is something they have been given. So it should trigger your humility. It should not trigger your pride. Anytime your righteousness triggers your pride, you know that's not righteousness. <laughs> that's false righteousness. That's pretense. That's hypocrisy. You see, the hypocritical righteousness will trigger your pride. But true righteousness will trigger your humility. Because that's what the Saudi shows us. That righteousness is man in relationship with God standing on humility. The nun is that letter of humility. The Saudi declare, the Saudi in being composed of a vav and a nun declares to us that man in being connected with God standing on, on humility. That's what it shows. The Vav is on the back of the Nun. The Vav stands on the back of the Nun. So it's man being propped up 
in connection with God, in relationship with God, through humility, by humility. <laughs> That's what it shows, my friends. You have to acknowledge the greatness of God. You see, friends, this also reminds us of the initiation of the Saudi in Genesis 1.26. The letter Selim. Man, as the image of God, is always subordinate to God. An image can never be greater than the object. The image is always subordinate and subjected to the object. Whatever the object does, the image copies. When you stand before a mirror, that image that you're looking at in the mirror is subordinate to you. It does nothing of its own. It only does what you do. It cannot. It does have a mind of its own. It does what you do. That is the relationship the righteous man has with God. The righteous man doesn't have a will of his own. He is subjected and always fully surrendered to the will of God. What he does is what God wants. He always does what God wants. That's the righteous man. Christ says, I'm not here to do mine own will. I'm here to do the will of my Father. The words I speak are not my words. They are the words of my Father. That's a righteous man. Because he does everything that God does. If God moves his right hand, the righteous man moves his right hand. Whatever he does is mimicking God. Just as all that image in the mirror mimics your movement, the righteous man mimics the movement of God and the words that God speaks. He speaks what God says. He does what God says. Christ declared this, my friends. And he's defining righteousness as he declared these words. He says, the works I do are not mine. They are what my father has sent me to do. They are the works of my father. This is Jesus Christ speaking. How then can we, who are subordinate to Christ, now think that we can just go about and do our own thing and still be righteous? No way, my friends. That's what I call hypocritical righteousness. In that circle, it always trigger your pride because you have a sense that we oh, have accomplished. But in true righteousness, it always trigger your humility because right, true righteousness always acknowledge that God is greater. Hallelujah. Let's look at the final word here. This final word, the sixth word that begins with a Saudi in the Saudi section of Psalm 119, the sixth word, in addition to the five Sadiq, is the word Sar. Sar. We have seen this word already when we looked at enemy. Because it's the same word that is translated enemy. But in this case, it is translated trouble. In verse 143, it says, Trouble and anguish have taken hold on me. Yet thy commandments are my delights. Mm. David says, I'm small and despised, yet do not I forget thy precepts. Even when he's despised and small, low status in society, he still owes on, still remember the word of God. Now he declares, trouble and anguish have taken hold on me. Yet thy commandments are my delights. In the midst of trouble, he says, your word is my delight. Your word, your commandments are my delight. He delights himself in the word of God, even in the midst of his troubles. That's a resolve that all of us need. But let's look at this word, sir. We have seen this word already. The third one in this consideration 
that is when he comes when he saw it was translated enemy in that instance the form of this word used there is sarar sare or yeah sare now that's the form of the word sar that is used there in that section when we look at the word enemy this is actually a compound of two words the word ani which is the first person i all right so it's all it's i me or my but the first person there i or or me right now the next word is sar which is means it means narrow or a tight place usually figuratively it speaks of trouble also it, it, it means a pebble as if pressed hard to a point right and it, it also speaks of a, an opponent as being crowded down you know in a gang someone yeah pressing into somebody so the crowd gangs him and press upon him and beats him down so it, it, it's either that or it's a pebble you know as if it's being compressed hard pressed hard to that point of so being so small all right so it's a night a narrow or tight place sar is derived from the root sarar which means to cramp in a literal or figurative sense so we see here that this word sar it's it speaks of of you know being in a tight spot so to speak so how does this relate to sadi and righteousness the sadi is a hooked fish or a fish hook or a path to a destination in both concepts we can see the relationship they share we can see in these two concepts the relationship that sar plays with sadi the hooked fish is movement is restricted. When the fish is on the hook, the movement of that fish is restricted. In other words, its actions are now limited to what that fisher allows him to do. So he only can do what the fisher allows him to do. So in other words, his movement is restricted, compressed. The path that leads to a destination, it restricts the movement of the one who travels on that path. If you're heading to that destination, you have to be on that path. In other words, you can't be going oh, oh, you know, left and right, left or right, and expect it to be on that path. It's a specified path, and it means that path limits your movement along that pathway. If you're following the path, your movement is restricted to that path. This idea of being restricted, it teaches us about righteousness. That righteousness restricts man. It restricts him to do only the will of him who he images. That is God. So man, the righteous man, he is restricted to do only what God allows him to do. The righteous man can only do what is righteous. In Ezekiel 33 and verse 18, that's a passage of scripture, or the verse of scripture that highlights for us a key component of righteousness. It says there, when the righteous turneth out from his righteousness and committeth iniquity, he shall even die thereby. That declares to us, my friends, that the righteous man, he must first turn from his righteousness before he can commit iniquity. Before man can commit iniquity, before the righteous man can commit iniquity, he must first turn from his righteousness. What's the righteousness of man? His relationship with God. 
Man has to turn from God to do that which is unrighteous, to do wickedness, to do iniquity. He must first turn away from God. That therefore should tell you, my friends, that as long as I stay with God, I'm righteous. As long as I stay with God, that is how righteousness restricts man. It restricts him in a relationship with God. So friends, that is what this word is teaching us about righteousness. That we are restricted to that relationship. That's why Christ says, you cannot serve God and mammon. You cannot serve God and anybody else. You are restricted to God and God alone. Any man who, who says he's serving God, but is also serving money, he's fooling himself. You are serving money under the pretext of serving God. That's what it is. You are serving money under the pretense of serving God. You cannot serve God and money. Mammon there means money. You cannot serve God and money. If you have a desire for financial gain and you are working in the kingdom of God, you are not serving God. You are serving mammon. And you can't serve God and mammon. It's either God or mammon. God alone and nothing else. The moment you have something else in that small circle, you are not serving God. You are pretending to serve God. You can't serve God and mammon. You have to serve God and forget about mammon. This is why ministers of the gospel have to endure some of the tragedies they do. Some of the financial restrictions they do. Because God has to put you to the test to see if you are in this for the money. To see if you are after this for the money. If you are in this for the money, you're not going to get anywhere with God. Because God is going to step back and allow you to serve your mammon. Because he's not going to share with nobody. God don't share <laughs> with nobody. <laughs> he says, I'm a jealous God. And he's not going to share his glory with anybody else. If you are glorifying God, you're glorifying God. But the moment you start to glorify anything else or anyone else, you are not glorifying God. Because God is not going to share that moment of glory with anything or anyone else. Also, my friends, we, we have to acknowledge this. It teaches us here that troubles are used to keep us on the path of righteousness. The path of righteousness is maintained or you are kept on the path of righteousness through troubles. <laughs> it's like the pathway is, is lined with thorn bushes. So on the right hand side there are thorn bushes. On the left hand side there are thorn bushes. Yeah, your, your, your movement along that path is restricted to being on that path. You go right, you're pricked. You go left, you're pricked. That's what troubles do. Troubles keep us in line. So the moment you turn right, oh, you mean trouble. So you don't want trouble, so you go, go left. You mean trouble, so it kind of keep you in the middle. Because <laughs> you know if you go left, that's trouble. You know if you go right, that's trouble. So you stay in the middle and you go along the path. Troubles are meant to keep us on the path of righteousness. Today, my friends, we have seen here three of the words that speaks of, you know, and teaches us about the Saudi. And these words we have looked at all display an aspect of the Saudi.
The righteous man is the man who acknowledges the greatness of God and completely surrenders to the will of God. Today we have seen the manifestation of this in the words that we have looked at. It has shown us that righteousness is about completely surrendering to God. Completely surrendering to the will of God. God demands nothing less of us. He wants all of us or none of us. That is the way it is with God. Because he's a jealous God and God will not share his glory with anyone else. You either choose to follow him blindly. By meaning that you surrender everything of you to him. You're seeing through his eyes, you speak with his words, and you walk with his feet, and you do things with his hands. Your hands become his, and every part of you become his. That's the complete surrender that is necessary to be a righteous man. You are completely taken over by God. Like Paul says, some giving your body as living, living sacrifices unto God, which is your reasonable act of worship. That is what it is, my friends completely surrendering to God and having him do what he wants with you. That's what righteousness is. We have seen that here today. Let that be your mantra, my friends. Complete surrender to God. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today for your favor, for your goodness and your mercy. They have been poured out upon our lives in many innumerable ways. And God, we are forever grateful to you forever thankful for you pouring out into our lives of your goodness and your mercy. This is how, Father, we are made righteous. This is how we have made your righteousness in this earth. We are grateful, O oh God, that you have chosen us to be a part of your family to display your righteousness. We give you thanks, O oh God, for your goodness, for your love and your mercy. And we tell you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a great day, you know, my friends. And do remember that God loves you and I do too. Shalom.